And so as we made our way through Matthew 5, the last three or four weeks, Jesus has dealt heavily with relationships and a number of facets of it. Kind of the first one of that series on relationships, Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not murder. And then he raised the bar and he said, but if you're angry, you've committed murder in your heart. And so the standard was raised that it's not just physically committing murder, but the attitudes of our heart somehow commit murder in the eyes before God. And there's a standard of how we deal with each other. And then we had a fun week on adultery. I'm glad Greg picked that week out of the hat. It's a fun one. But it got harder than just don't go commit adultery. But if you look at another person with lust, you're committing adultery in your heart. In the eyes of the Lord, you've committed adultery. Ouch. And then we did a week on divorce. And it felt like an easy one. Just don't get divorced. But but that's harder in our culture. A lot of people are getting divorced. It's hard to have a good marriage and it's hard to stay together. And you raise the bar that you can't just send your spouse away and get a certificate of divorce and move on, but that there's sin if you do it. Someone's sin, the husband, the wife, both, but there's sin. And God called us into that higher calling. And then last week, Rich talked about making vows. That's a, that was a tough word, too, that... We should be men and women that are trustworthy and honest and of character, that we don't need to swear on God's name. It's just a given that we're going to tell the truth. I don't think a hundred years ago you worried, was Grandpa telling the truth, is Dad telling the truth? It's just the character people maybe had more. Now it's not a given. We have to grow that character. And today we have two more statements we're going to look at that are raising the bar in our relationships. And then Matthew 6 kind of transitions off into how we're practicing righteousness in public settings. But that's that framework. If Jesus looks at the Old Testament, looks at the standards of the world, and then raises the bar, it's not just something legalistic, but what can we do to honor the Lord? And we just sang a song that touched my heart even thinking about this message. When we sing, you can have all this world... And just give me Jesus. It's kind of a tough song to sing sometimes, just to think about, God, will we give you over everything in this world? Will we hand it over because we want Jesus more than what we see? And it's funny, the things we're talking about here, we're talking about you can have lying, and you can have adultery, and lust, and anger, and going to court, and all that stuff. And holding on to things with your enemies. Because God's given us a better life. And yet it's still a hard word. With that in mind, we'll look at this passage. Let's just pray before we get in the word here. God, we do thank you for today. God, we thank you that there's something better that you give. You give a life. You give something better than what's in the world. And getting divorced and being stuck in anger and revenge and lust and lying. God, we thank you that you give life by your spirit. We just pray you'd help us hear your word and apply it today. God, even in a hard word, like thinking about our enemies, thinking about those that wrong us or speak poorly of us or blaspheme you. 
and you call us into this higher standard with him. We just pray you'd help us hear this message and by your spirit apply it. Just redeem the time we have here together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, with that, we'll get one verse in. Maybe. It's coming. Okay, Matthew 5.38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what Jesus says, and he's referring to Leviticus chapter 24 below. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for a fracture, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. And so what Jesus is driving at is that the worldly standard, the standard of the law, goes, is giving and receiving at an eye for an eye. A tit for tat, even Stephen, keep it fair. And while that verse references injury in Leviticus, as we get through this passage, you'll see Jesus talks about it in terms of giving to one another and being wronged. Injury, kind of that revenge factor of Leviticus. And so I was trying to think about, is that is that really what our world is like? Is that what our standard is like, is just eye for an eye giving? And so I was thinking about a few a few things. This stunning couple is us a while ago. The first time we sent out a Christmas card, we'd just been married about a year. I'm not positive that's the picture. We couldn't find it, but it's at least the era of the picture. So that's pretty good. But the year before our first Christmas card, we had about 10 or 15 cards that were given to us, and they were up on the fridge. And then we decided to go all in and get Christmas cards, and I think Sarah ordered like 150 or 200 of them and sent them to most of you. I don't know. I didn't know we knew that many people, but we sent out that many. The next year, we had like 100 Christmas cards on our refrigerator because all those people sent them back. We're used to giving things back that we receive. I learned that if you send out a lot of Christmas cards, you get a lot back. Christmas gifts. Or gifts in general. We tend to think this way too with gifts. Uh, My brother and I both have a birthday in June, and so we often combine our birthday parties together in one event, so we're not getting together like every week. And I think we try to target just getting something the same amount of value. So this year, he got me a bike helmet, and I got him a pair of headphones. I think they're both about 30 bucks, so he like, have a sigh of relief, so they're the same. But if you've ever, like, misjudged it and gone, and you get a bike helmet, and you give back a Snickers bar, you're uncomfortable the rest of dinner because you missed the mark. We like being eye for an eye and equal on it. Likewise, we tend to give and receive gifts to the same people. If I'm kind of a Scrooge and don't give out any Christmas gifts this year, probably next year I won't get any. People remember Brad didn't give me any gifts. I'm not getting him one either. We tend to get them back from who we give them to. That's a lovely dinner setting. I learned this with having people over for dinner too. It can become this relational block. We like to have people over for dinner when we can, just to to reach out to people, have them in our home. And so when we meet people, they tend to come over to our home once. And then what do people say when you have them over for dinner? 
we should have you over sometime because they feel obligated. Now, there's a roadblock in a relationship that if you have someone over and they don't actually want to follow through on that, that's probably the end of ever going in each other's homes because they won't come back a second time because they feel guilty that they didn't have you over because we think like an eye for an eye. And hardships, like Leviticus talked about, is kind of the same. This guy... He's fantastic. That's when boxing was boxing. (laughs) But if you hit someone on the street, you'll probably get hit back. You can expect a fight will start. You'll get kind of the same thing. Likewise, if you start cussing at someone on the street, you'll probably get cussed out back. And then maybe you'll end up in the fight with that guy. It's how we think. It's how we're ingrained in this world of an eye for an eye. Even in boxing, we want it to kind of be fair. We want people to wail on each other and be bloodied and fallen over, but don't go below the belt, get a referee in there, make sure it's fair, and play by the rules. It's how we think. But Jesus raises the bar on this beyond just the worldly standard and what we see. Matthew 5 He says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And so Jesus sets this new standard. What I'll call the gospel standard. It's beyond the law. And the gospel standard is to give abundantly and endure graciously regardless of how we're treated in return. And uh, Matthew 5.42 on there says, Give to him who asks for you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow. So that same standard with borrowing. Ouch. <laughs> put that verse from Luke 16, I think it applies to this giving and borrowing that he'd say later in his ministry, Jesus would, where he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So Jesus sees our wealth, our time, our talents, all these things as a way to gain friends, not just something we should give and receive equally few ways I was thinking about this. We give of ourselves in a lot of ways. You know, I was thinking there was a guy at my work a number of years back that was having some trouble in an area. Um, I was a software developer, and he was this, this guy, and he was having trouble, and I ended up helping him like three or four days in a row and taking time out from my work and sitting down with him for an hour. And I did it three or four days, and he was really appreciative, and we got stuff up and running, and he was just thanking me, and he asked me if there was anything I could do for him. Instead of saying, help me with my work, let's get a lot done, I need to catch back up, I just took as an opportunity and, and said, yes, we're doing this gospel class at church and I need someone to go through it with me. And he is not the answer he was looking for. <laughs> he fished in the wrong hole, but he went anyway, was very uncomfortable, sat through the whole thing because I'd helped him. I used what I was giving as a means 
for the gospel and not just getting something in return on my work. It has a testimony. I think of, I had a relationship in my immediate family that was really challenging all growing up. We just kind of clashed and battled and undercut each other and, and that kind of stuff. And I went to college and became a Christian and started following God. And then I went back for a summer and it didn't line up. And so I went in and just prayed, God, help me be sweet and help me serve and, and not do that stuff. And it only took about a day of being back in town that they stopped me and they're like, whoa, what's different? Because I wasn't responding in kind. I was responding like Christ would ask me to. And I immediately was able to talk about, this is what Christ has done in my life in the last six months. So we can use our wealth, we can use our talents to give abundantly. And that's just a few examples there. I put up Proverbs 18.16 too. It just says, A gift opens the way and ushers the giver into the presence of the great. God somehow allows our giving, our gifts to other people and our relationships, even above and beyond, to usher us into places and being with people we might not be with otherwise, having opportunity with people that might not want to listen to our message otherwise. So I ask you to consider who can you give graciously to? It's a hard standard, but I'm just thinking about this verse and thinking, boy, there's a guy at at work lately that's been kind of a, a stickler and hard with. I'm just praying, God, how could I really bless him and just go above and beyond that I could be an impact for the gospel? encourage you to just pray and see if God might have someone in your life you could bless in that way. So another part of this, Jesus has another command here. He says, he talks about, he says, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them two. And this is kind of a lost in translation reference on us, but the Roman soldiers had the authority to just grab someone on the street and say, you, carry my bags for a mile. And you had to stop whatever you were doing and walk with them. And it was demeaning, and they didn't like it, and it was really inconvenient because you were doing something else, and they had you go. And so the standard Jesus is saying is, get to the end of that mile and say, can I just keep carrying your bags another mile beyond that really inconvenient one you just had me carry your bags for? We tend to use this phrase in our culture to say, go the extra mile, your boss might say it at work, to say, like, try harder, or you might hear it in sports, like, let's go the extra mile and run some extra laps. I think it misses the mark of what this is talking about, even. It's beyond just working a little harder, but just going really inconvenient. I think of it as something like, you got a speeding ticket, and you just write a check for twice the amount. You got your tax bill for the year, and you owe $3,000 on your house, you write one for 6000 Just, let's bless Denver. They could use an extra $3,000. Let's go the extra mile. It's just absurd. And that word was, walk two miles. No thanks. I was thinking of a few areas. What does this look like for us? This guy, working late. I don't know if you've ever been asked to work overtime or on a Saturday or a time you wouldn't. Uh, My last job 
I was working for the courts, and so we had to do these software releases on weekends because the courts needed to be closed, and that meant Saturdays. And so we kind of rotate who would work some of these things, and it was like picking, pulling teeth to get someone to volunteer. Who wants to work Saturday? Anyone? Any takers? And so after a while, I thought, Lord, just help me volunteer that I think that's my go the second mile, just raise my hand and say, I'll work Saturday, even if we had something going on. Try to do that. We had a neighbor, this is not our street, but it's a busy parked street. We had a neighbor down the street when we first moved in. I learned in Denver, people really care about being able to park right in front of their house. Like, two doors down is not the same as in front of your house. And so nobody has driveways, but we want to park in front of our house. And so we'd just been living in our house like six months, and we had a Bible study at our house, and I don't know, had 15, 20 people over. And our neighbor down the street was like, there's people parking in front of our house. You having one of those pot parties? I'm like, no, I'm a pastor. <laughs> We introduced them, but it was this opportunity just to be gracious and apologize and try to ask people to park in other areas. And we hit that first Christmas, and Sarah baked her cookies, and we brought them down the street and gave out cookies to all our neighbors just to try to be gracious. I think it was, we could have gotten hard-hearted and said, fine, but don't park in front of ours either. I don't know what it would have accomplished anything, but it's an opportunity to just go that mile. This picture is awesome. It sort of has something to do with what I'm talking about. There's actually a video that went with it that was even more awesome. I had loaned my car out to a sister in the church. I'd bought a new one, and I was trying to sell my old one. And so I held on to my old one because I was trying to sell it, and I had the for sale sign. It was like before you just did it on Craigslist. And so I just gave her the keys to my new car and said, just drive it until I sell it. It's fine. It happened that she got in an accident and, like, smashed up the whole front of it. And she felt terrible and was like, okay, I'll go get it fixed. It's just I don't have the money. I just told her my own car. I don't know what to do. And I just said, you know, don't worry about it. Drive the other car. I'll take that one back. And it, it was just an opportunity to say, how can I go above and beyond in relationship? It's not just about getting the same amount of money back, but how can I show the love of Christ. And so another question up there for you to consider, just how can you endure through challenges to build relationship capital for the sake of the gospel? When we act this way, when we go above and beyond, when we go that second mile, when we're only required to go one, people take notice of that. It's not how the world works. The world works and let's keep it equal. And it gives us a chance for a testimony. Okay, so there's a second section here. That's a hard enough word. And then Jesus went on. And he said, you shall, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Was the next word. And that kind of references Leviticus 19.18. It says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. For I am the Lord. So I was thinking about this one. 
love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That also kind of makes sense to me. Like, love your clan or your tribe and hate the next one over because they're competition for, I don't know, animals or water or whatever. I think even as Americans, love our neighbors. It's 4th of July. We love our neighbors. We love Americans. It hit Olympic time. It's go USA. We love all the Americans. And we're trained to hate our enemies as well. There was an era where it was love the Americans, hate the Nazis. Love the Americans, hate the communists. Love the Americans, hate the Al-Qaeda. None of those people are not saying we should go out and like any of those causes. But we're trained to love our neighbor and hate our enemy. To tell the world works. If you're astute, you might stop me and say that verse in Leviticus didn't actually say anything about hating your enemy. And you'd be right. In fact, that was not a direct command in the Old Testament. So it's kind of funny that Jesus says, you've heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, because one's almost a direct quote and one is not. But I do think it was prevalent culture at that time. This. Yeah. Love your neighbor. This is kind of funny, too, because he says, you've heard it say, love your neighbor, and that's kind of the given. I don't think that's a given anymore to know how to do this. There's whole, like, best-selling books on just how to love our neighbors because I only know half the people's names on my street, let alone knowing how to love them. That's hard anymore, but that's kind of a given here, so we'll assume we're loving our neighbors. Message for another day. This verse I was thinking about, it was in the one-year Bible yesterday. I read it, and just that, even though there wasn't a direct command to hate our enemies, it was thinking. It was in the scriptures. It was how we thought. Psalm 149 says, Let the praises of God be in their mouths and a sharp sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with shackles and their leaders with iron chains, to execute the judgment written against them. This is the glorious privilege of his faithful ones. Praise the Lord. And this indicates that the Jew could be walking in God's will by carrying out the Lord's vengeance somehow when he was, God was ready to judge a nation. It was one of the means that God used to judge wickedness. There was other things he did, destroyed whole towns or the flood to destroy the world. But he would use Israel to go destroy nations that were defiant to them. So it would have been normal thinking to get an order from God to go destroy your enemies and to to hate those who hated the Lord and were being wicked. And that's kind of how they were thinking, and that's kind of how we think too. And this is what Jesus said to them. He said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so again, Jesus raises the bar much higher and says it's not just love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
And so the gospel standard is to show kindness and pray that our enemies would come to relationship with Jesus. Whoa. Another tough one. I don't know if they were in the midst of that kind of laughing at Jesus, thinking, wait, you don't want us to destroy people that are just being openly defiant of you? You want us to be kind and pray? I think that was a ridiculous word as they heard it. I can only imagine heads kind of cocking to the side or laughing, thinking, you want us to do what? To who? Where do we even start to process this? Well, I think one facet to consider is who our enemies are really enemies of. You know, it's talking about praying for those that persecute us. I don't think that's for anyone that's being mean or doesn't like us. We think of persecution when we think of persecution as it relates to the gospel, bearing the name of Jesus Christ. And so we need to realize that our enemies are really enemies of Jesus. And we specifically face persecution for bearing his name. And people hate Jesus. He's polarizing. He's calling people out for sin. He's saying they need to change their life. So they hate Jesus. They hate Christianity. And they persecute us. They persecute Christians because of that. Okay, I can't get through a message without one sports reference. It's just not possible for me. So this guy, you might know, his name's LeBron James. He's one of the most famous basketball players and popular in the league. He was in Cleveland there, and people had his jersey. They were paying one or $200 for these nice jerseys to bear his name, to bear the Cleveland Cavaliers' name, and they loved him. And then he decided to go to the Miami Heat. And a day later, they were burning $100 and $200 jerseys on the street because they were so mad he went to the Miami Heat. Same people that were paying hundreds of dollars for them the day before. And then he came back three years later, and they had to run out and buy more. And now he's back on their team. It's not just the, the guy. Some people are just fans of him. But just switching the team on the jersey can incite this kind of response because of who he was bearing the name of. This is cheesy. I'm going to admit it up front. I don't know if I'd really wear that on the street. But we kind of bear a jersey like this. Team Jesus. When we're baptized, when we publicly proclaim Christ, we bear his name on us. And it's like walking around with that on it. And the world sees us as enemies. That's the different team. That's not the one they're playing for. And that infuriates them. I don't know if any of you have ever like gone out to California and gone into a Raiders game with a Broncos jersey. Has anyone ever tried that? No? It probably wouldn't be that wise because if you walk in there with that jersey, you might not walk out intact because of that jersey you're wearing. And we're bearing that name. And so in light of that, another facet is that we need to be wise in how we deal with people. Jesus would say this later in Matthew, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. 
And so we must be wise in how we deal with people. I look at this and think we can have enemies for all kinds of reasons. We can get bad words to us for all kinds of reasons. But we can pick a little bit when we're getting them. So I offer just a few things here. Would you consider avoiding some of these things? Arguments, hot button topics. And I say that because of this. What's really important to stake the arguments on? What's important to be inflammatory on? I can go say all kinds of things on the street that would get me enemies. I could say something about politics and I could get all kinds of enemies and arguments and people from all over the map. We just saw jerseys burning. I can say things about sports and get all kinds of arguments. But I don't really want to plant my flag on politics. I don't know about you. I've argued it before. I care. But I don't want that to be the thing that's driving a wedge in relationships and helping me not get to the gospel. Because if I spend a half hour arguing that this political party is better than this one or this team is better than that one, that's kind of the, the wedge in our relationship and it's hard to move past that and now let's get to the gospel. It just doesn't happen. So is it worth arguing about those things? Even religion. I think if you start to share with people, start to share what's going on, you can get into things like things of the church. I like kneeling. I don't like kneeling. I want to wear a tie. I don't want to wear a tie. I don't know. You could argue those things. I have an opinion. But I don't want that to be the thing I'm arguing someone about. It doesn't matter. It drives a wedge. I've even heard things that are inflammatory towards us, towards me, or Christians in general. You can start sharing or just talk to someone and you hear Christians are closed-minded or violent or homophobic or sexist or all kinds of things. And sometimes it gets into worse language. And I could go back and say, no, you're closed-minded. It's not really going to get us anywhere. I think it's one of those things where God calls us to something higher. And I sidestep those points because I don't want to get in and argue about that because it blows my chance in really being a witness and sharing about the gospel. So I can understand, you know, we can just agree to disagree on whether or not you wear a tie to church. That's fine. But I want to build common ground and gain credibility to lead towards sharing truth. And I want to be kind and love people so that my message holds credence by how I act. And I think it even goes into do not respond to people in kind. Again, if there, people are arguing with me and saying, you're close-minded, responding back like that isn't going to move things forward. Really, it kind of gets up here into knowledge and defensiveness and arguments, and it gets further and further away from reaching people's hearts with the gospel. So I want you to consider another question. Is how did Jesus treat those who were his enemies? I think it's important. He said we should do this. How did it line up in his life? And as Jesus was hanging on the cross completely betrayed, handed over to the Jews, beaten to the point where he wasn't even recognizable anymore, and he was near death. This is what he said. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
and they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And so even to the end, Jesus lived out this message that his people did things more wicked than they'd ever do to us. He prayed for them right from the cross. Father, forgive them. He could have said, Lord, rain down fireballs of judgment, and they all would have died and it would have been fine. In one aspect, they probably deserved it. We deserve that. But what did he do? He preached to them. He tried to get them to change their minds, to come to know God. He prayed for them. When he was betrayed and they came to arrest Jesus, Peter, he's like the take charge, get in the front guy, draws out a sword, and he's chopping away at the guys, and Jesus tells him to stop. Don't resist, and lets himself be handed over. Again, he lived out this principle this command to us and how he treated people that were his enemies. Another thing to consider is consider God's grace to us while we were his enemies. This occurred to me this week as I was praying about things. Romans 5.10 For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still enemies we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So we were God's enemies. You know, last week I was sitting in my office and there was guys out talking at work and they were just talking really flippantly about the Lord's name and Christians and, and using the Lord's name in vain and it just felt kind of yucky. And I thought that must not honor the Lord and I was a little offended and... And then I was thinking, boy, before I knew Christ, I did that a lot. I didn't always use God's name and honor. I used it in vain. I used it callously. I was living a life that didn't match up. I was an enemy of God. And it's while I was sitting there that Jesus was on the cross for me while I was part of that crowd. He showed kindness. He prayed. He sacrificed for me. To just consider the lengths that Jesus went for us. And then think, how can we show this kindness to people in our life? Even that are pickles, or hard to deal with, or persecuting us. I think um, at work, we used to do these things where you would fill out like end-of-the-year reviews on each other. And then they sent them tied raises into that, which was a great idea. <laughs> and so if you were all like good moral people, you'd probably build each other up and do things on how to improve. Instead, it turned into like middle school gossipy soup. And so I remember, and you could kind of tell who wrote them. They would just put all the comments and they give it to you and you could, by context, kind of... There's not that many people. You can kind of guess out of five or ten people who would write what. And there was this one gal that year after year would just put kind of garbage about me on there. Like, might have been true. It might have been a little bit true. And then, like, extended way farther. It might have not been true at all. And it would happen year after year. And it kind of rotated, like, who you got one for. And, and year after year, i get this review to fill out for her. And I'd want to just put the worst things. And I think of this and think, 
Lord, I don't think you want me to go there and respond in kind. And so I'd just write really sweet things about her and and just trust God's going to work through this over time and not get sucked into gossip and whatever else. And I think over time it just gave credibility of year after year of not doing that. And in my last year of working there, we had an opportunity just to share the gospel and how God was working our life through incredible tragedy last year with a number of people. I think it gave credence to the message that things were somehow different in my life and how I treated them. Okay, finally, we need help with this. Like I talked about all that stuff that's natural to us, and makes sense to us and how the world's doing, it's because it's how we're wired. All that garbage is in me, it's in you, and it's what we want to give out naturally. And so we need to ask the Holy Spirit to pour supernatural love through you, through me. And I just think back to some of those things. Like Jesus said, natural is to love those who love you, The supernatural is to love those who hate you. Natural is to give to people in kind, and supernatural is to give way above and beyond what people are giving you. Natural is to lend to people you think could reasonably pay you back. He talks about lending there. I didn't totally get to it. But he talks about lending to people who have no way they're ever going to pay you back. Would you give to someone who just, you knew, it's just money down the drain, not my flesh. On our own, we can only produce love for those, for our hard people, our enemies. But it's that eye for eye kind of love. That's all that's in there. It's all we have. But by God's Spirit, we can do something more. We can live by His power. We can love our enemies in the face of incredible persecution. I guess even some of you high schoolers that were out handing out, how many thousand flyers was that? I don't know, every time I go hand out flyers for this, at least one person really not happy with it has a mean-spirited word to say. I bet you got a few of those. Can we show kindness to those people and love them? And in the face of that, I just think, what's really important Because my flesh, what's important is I want to get a fair shake. I want the gloves to be up above the belt. But the gospel standard is what can we do to expand the gospel and see it advanced with how we're treating other people? And so is the way we love other people really witnessing? Is it furthering the name of Christ? Is it bringing honor? Is it supernatural by the power of the Lord's Spirit? Or is it just kind of what junk comes out of us? So I'd just have you consider how you can pray for your enemies, how you can bless people that are hard in your life to see the gospel advance. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you even in the midst of a hard word. My flesh doesn't want to do this. God, I'd rather get my own vengeance. I'd rather hold on to stuff. I'd rather say something in response. Lord, help us love our enemies. Or help us pray for those 
that persecute us, that hate your name. God, help us love people that are far from you. We just pray you really help us keep the gospel in light, that you have us here to advance the gospel, to share with people, to love people. And that's a lot more important than all of our petty stuff. I just pray you'd help us each with that this week and help us live out the gospel standard by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.